Well, in the early 1990s, as Californians became more and more conscious of their health, some might say obsessed, uh, they began drinking less milk. They were drinking soy milk and oat milk and almond milk and pretty much everything except milk, milk. And so this caused uh, some concern for the California Milk Processor Board. And so in 1993, they voted to fund an advertising campaign to raise awareness that people used to like milk and should continue to drink it. And hopefully this would combat this long-term decline in uh, dairy product consumption. They hired the advertising firm Goodby, Silverstein, and Partners, who came up with what they themselves would admit was a, quote, lazy and grammatically incorrect slogan. Got milk. The campaign ran a series of commercials about people who would find themselves in an uncomfortable predicament because they've got a mouthful of some kind of sticky food or uh, cookies or cake or a sandwich, and then they would be out of milk to wash it down. And then it would always end with this question, got milk? Make sure that you always had something to wash it down. Well, the campaign was very successful. The first commercial they ran was named one of the top 10 commercials of all time, achieving a 90% recognition rate, which is prodigious for an advertising campaign. For the 10% of you who don't know the ad, it starts off with a historian in a museum, and he's uh, lathering a, uh, a slice of bread. He's making himself a peanut butter sandwich with a ton of peanut butter on it. And in this museum, this is the whole room that he's sitting in is dedicated to the famous duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. The guns are there and the bullets are there and there's pictures of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr and, and everything's there. And this guy's obviously an expert in that. And, and while he's making a sandwich, there's a DJ on the radio who says, we're going to make a phone call to a random listener and give them $10,000 if they can answer a trivia question. And the phone rings as he bites into the sandwich and he picks it up. And the question is, who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? And... Very confidently, he says, mmm, mmm, <laughs> He can't say the word Aaron Burr because his mouth's so full of the sandwich, and he keeps trying and trying. And so to wash it down, he grabs a carton of milk, but the carton is empty, and the DJ hangs up, and the camera pans to his face, and it says, got milk? Well, what's interesting to me is that as successful as the campaign was, and uh, the Californians were reminded that they used to like milk and they should drink it again, there was always one group of Californians that was still drinking milk that never needed a commercial to remind them that that's what they wanted. I'm speaking, of course, of the demographic of the population known as newborn babies. Every mom knows that your baby has various different cries, you know, the burp cry and the I'm in pain cry, but there's that distinct cry, that special one that just tunes into that frequency that you can't ignore, that, that urgency that's the newborn's baby's way of communicating to the mom, got milk? Well, Peter tells us what we need to be consuming so that we grow strong spiritually, and he tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So turn your Bibles to... 1 Peter chapter 2, last week we saw the, the preamble to this command that's coming is that there was this, this precondition that we had to lay aside certain sins, and we saw that there's some sins in life that everybody agrees 
uh, need to be scrubbed out of your life. But then there's some sins we sort of tolerate in our own lives. We tolerate them in each other. Everybody's doing them. They're more like subtle sins. Um, they're not visible stains. They're more like the chemicals from the dry cleaning that's still toxic for you, even though you can't see them as clearly. And he says those need to be put aside. And so that's what we looked at last week, the, the sins of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. But having put those things aside, there's now a put-on behavior. Once you've got that dirty set of clothes out of your life, what do you put on? And that's where we find ourselves, this new longing for something spiritual. I'll pick it up again in uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's as far as we'll get this morning. We're going to look at those first, um, well, verse 2 and verse 3 of, of chapter 2. We're going to see three aspects of this craving that we're meant to have, three aspects of this craving that fuels our spiritual growth so we'll continue to grow and be more mature. We'll see the duty of desire, that it's actually commanded. Uh, we'll see the goal of desire, what is this desire going to lead to, and then the object of desire. So firstly, the, the duty. The duty of desire is found in verse 2. Here's the command. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're finally at the command. Now that you've put away these distracting sins of malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander, uh, sins that some people tolerate in their lives, but Christians have a higher standard. Now that we've put these things aside... We have this longing now. We, we, we're, we come to a point that, well, we're, we're hungry for something. What is it? And the word to long for means to crave. It's used nine times in the New Testament and every time of an intense desire for something. In the Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Bible Jesus would have used in his day, um, this is the word that's used in Psalm 42. We read Psalm 42 earlier in the, in the service. As a deer pants for the water so my soul pants for you that panting that longing for that that thirst that that requires you you know if you take your dog for a long walk and it comes in and, and its tongue is out and it's just panting <laughs> until you get it to the water dish and it just dumps its whole head in the water dish that's a good sign it means it's got a good workout in the same way that's how your soul is psalm 42 said that's what my soul was like i needed you more than anything else my soul was panting it was panting it was longing to be to be quenched by the the living water of my relationship with you oh god and so here, uh, Peter tells us, you need to have that desire, that panting, that longing, that um, insatiability for the spiritual word, for the milk. Now, it's an interesting fact that it's a command. It's, an, it's a, a command 
that targets desire. That's not something we usually do. We don't, we don't do that in our conversation. I mean, if you think about it, you tell your, your kid to eat her broccoli and her cauliflower, and she might say to you, but daddy, I don't want to. And then you use the dad sarcasm and say, well, that's, that's okay, because I didn't tell you you had to want to eat it. I just told you you had to eat it. You know, we're just satisfied if she obeys and eats her broccoli. She doesn't have to like it. She just have, has to do it. But that's not what God is content with. When he tells us to do this, he wants us to not only do it, he wants us to like it. He's commanding you to want this, to intensely want it. So it's a, it's a very interesting command that God can actually command us to desire something. The Holy Spirit is telling us to desire and to crave this nourishment because he knows it's good for us. One of the interesting and fun things about pregnancy, well, I guess it's fun for the husband, um, is that sometimes expectant moms have these strange cravings. Um, and they just, they want something very, very specific. And my mom always used to tell me that when um, she was expecting me, she had a desire for two things. The, the um, ice that would grow on the metal grate in the refrigerator, you know, that there was probably some metallic something that I needed. I don't know. And then the other thing was a Tex bar. You know, Tex uh, chocolate can candy bar. Oh, is it only in South Africa? What's it like here? What do we have here? No, it's not a Snickers. You guys don't have Tex? Ah, I didn't even know that. Now I suddenly want one. <laughs> It's a really, really good candy bar. It's got like wafer in, I think maybe like a Twix maybe, but there's like an aero part in the middle. It's divine. And my mom thought I was going to be a girl, so she named me Juanita before I was born. And so she would always say, Juanita wants a Tex. And so I grew up on those Texas before I was even born. But here, there's this, that's, that's the craving. It's almost like this inexplicable desire for something very, very specific that, that cannot, be, um, it cannot be satiated with something else. That's what this command is. So, so what is it? He says in verse 2, like newborn infants long for or crave the pure spiritual milk. Now, different versions have a different way of translating it. It's kind of a tr tricky thing in the Greek. If you have the English Standard Version that I read from here, or the New Living Translation, or the New English Translation, it's going to say spiritual milk. But if you have the New King James Version, or the New American Standard Bible, or the uh, legacy standard bible or the christian standard bible it's going to have long for the pure milk of the word so why does one version have of the word and the other one says spiritual milk you know milk of the word and spiritual milk well it's because of the word that's used there for spiritual it's the word logikon uh, logikon so usually in in greek you would say pneumatikos for um for spiritual uh but here it's this word that's only used in this very particular situation, like Paul uses it in uh, Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your logicon worship, or your version might say your reasonable service. So it's, it's a word that has... The, the logos part in it, logos means word, 
but it actually means like a rationality or reasonableness. And it's used in a context where the writer wants to show you that he's talking about something metaphorical and not literal. So Paul's talking about, I want you to sacrifice your body. Obviously not literally. I want you to be a living sacrifice. This is your logicon. This is your metaphorical sacrifice. Don't go and kill yourself on an altar. I'm speaking metaphorically. That's what Peter's doing here. He's saying, I want you to long for something. And I'm not telling you to go and eat something very specific like other religions do. Some religions would say that you have to have this particular substance um, in order to be holy. He's, he's saying, obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically. So you can translate it to spiritual milk. But I also like milk of the word because that's in the context. What is it that God is telling us that we need to want? Well, he just spoke about the word. Um, Look back at verse 23 of chapter 1. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word, the logu of God. But the word of the Lord remains forever, verse 25 says. And this word is the good news that's preached to you. So here we have this thing we're supposed to desire, and where we get our nourishment from is the word of God. You need to desire spiritual things rather than just Physical appetites, that's the main point here. The psalmist, psalmist sings about God's word in Psalm 19, verse 10. More to be desired are they, the words of God, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We're to desire God's words more than we desire anything else that this world has to offer us whether it's a physical appetite like honey, or we might say text bars, chocolate or something, or whether it's, it's something physical here like gold and, and or everything that that brings, all the finances. Imagine you lived in a country where the government required you to pay a portion of your income to get a license to read the Bible. Every year you would need to pay 50% of your income if you want the the right to read the Bible, would you do it? The psalmist says that the words of God should be more desirable to you than gold. If you had to choose, you, could, you had to eat only porridge for the rest of the year for the right to read the Bible, would you do that? The psalmist says we're to desire the words of God more than even honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. So why? Why do I need to desire the word of God? Why does this church make such a big deal about the Bible? In all the classes, there's always Bible, Bible, Bible. Why is that? I'm glad you asked. This brings us to our second point. Good question. Um, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. So our second point here is the goal of desire. We've looked at the duty of desire. It's actually a duty, a Christian duty, that you have to want the, this, this pure spiritual milk. And, but why? What is the point of that? The goal of it is that you may grow up to salvation. To be mature. To be more godly. To become a more spiritual person. Now, you know, we've, we, you can observe this. You know that there are some Christians that, in your life that are more mature than other Christians, right? You just observe that. There's, there's just some people that have grown up in their salvation more than other people. 
Um, we see this just taken for granted in the Bible. Uh, Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there's people in the church who are more spiritual. There's people in the church that are more mature. You are the ones that are supposed to come around the, the weaker one who's fallen into some sin. Another example is Romans 15, 1, where Paul says, we who are strong are to bear with those who are weak. So in the context of Christians bearing with one another, sometimes the weak Christian is going to have some strange views and they're going to have certain hang-ups about um, things in their life or whatever. And we who are strong, he says, need to bear with those who are weak. So the, the point I'm making here is it's just taken for granted that there are going to be in every church some believers who are more spiritual, more mature. They're called the strong. And there's going to be some who are less mature. They're even called the weak, the weaker brother. Now, that's okay. That's not an insult. You might say the same about a young family. In a family of five, there may be some who are more mature. Let's hope that they're the parents. And then there are going to be some who are less mature, you know, the teenagers. And there's going to be some even less mature than them, the, the babies. And that's okay. In general, the longer you're alive, the more mature you become. And I do say that a big in general. Because we've met some people who never grew out of the teenage phase, right? Um, and, and same spiritually. In general, the longer you're a Christian, the more mature you're going to become. If you're a baby believer, you've just been saved, there's so much you don't know. That's okay. Where do you learn that, though? It doesn't just come with time. You, you, have to, you have to learn it, so you have to read the Bible. And let's face it, reading the Bible can be quite intimidating sometimes. It's, there's some strange stuff in there. There's confusing things in there. And so you need to study it and listen to sermons and maybe read commentaries and ask questions and send your pastor an email and you know, figure out what it means. And the more you do that, the more you will understand the word and the more it will nourish you and the more you'll grow. And this is what Peter's saying. You need to long for that. You need to crave that pure spiritual milk that comes from God through his word. And the more you crave it and the more you, you fill yourself with it, the more you are going to grow into your salvation. Now, I just want to be clear. He's not saying that this is what saves you. That's not what he means when he says grow up to salvation. It's like a prince... Um, inherits the throne when, when he's young. His father dies, he inherits the throne. Well, now he's king, but he needs to grow into that role. He, he needs to learn how to do that. In the same way, you're declared perfect and righteous in Christ when you become saved. But you need to grow into that salvation and, and live more according to who you are. That's what he's talking about. And so some other passages that talk about the different... Uh, levels of maturity in Mark 4 verse 8 in the parable of the soils. For example, Jesus says, The seeds fell into the good soil. They produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So there's some Christians that yield 30-fold fruitfulness and there's some Christians that yield 100-fold. John 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. He says, Every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So that's your goal as you grow into your salvation is you want to be bearing more fruit. 
The pruning comes through God's work in your life. Through trials, through difficulty, maybe health concerns, relationship issues, things that happen in the world, but it can also just come from reading and understanding and growing in your knowledge of the word. And so you need to want that. You need to desire that. You are the Christians that God has entrusted his kingdom to. It's our job to spread the kingdom. It's our job to have more and more people be saved and more and more people grow in their maturity. We're it. We're the generation that's alive right now that has to do that. Now, when I was a, a kid, my grandmother, I remember we were driving and I, I, I saw this bridge and I was like, how do, how do you build a bridge? It just seemed like such an impossible thing. How do, you, how do people, how do they know how to do that? And she said, well, they go to school, they become engineers, and then civil engineers build the bridges. And I said, well, what's going to happen when all of those engineers grow old and die? And they said, well, there'll be new engineers. You and your friends, she said. And I don't remember how old I was, but I was little. You and your friends will be the next generation of engineers and doctors and lawyers, and you will be the ones that take care of these things and build new ones and even come up with new ideas. And I was petrified. I was like, you don't know my friends. We're losers. I mean, we try to do the bare minimum in school. We're, we're getting, you know, C's and D's and the, the math is easy. And now suddenly you're telling us we're going to have to build bridges? I'm not going to drive over any bridge any of my friends ever build. But then, you know, time goes on. And you, you, I remember she said to me, just keep going to school. It was her way of saying, trust the process. And you just go, and year after year, you get closer and closer to college, and you get better and better at those things. And then you, you go, get into college, and you just go to those classes. And in the end, you, you pass, and, and then you get an internship. And you just trust the process. And, and now, all these years later, I have friends who are engineers and doctors. And they're building bridges. And I mean, I wouldn't go to them, but... Um, as I just have vivid memories, but other people do, and they seem to be surviving, going to those doctors, and I have friends that are accountants and uh, movie producers, and I, it's like, wow, they, uh, they're, they're rocking it, you know, they're doing it. And, and then you look at our kids, and you think, the world is doomed. <laughs> but it's not. Just trust the process. Just do the next right thing. Well, it's the same with the, the spiritual world. It's the same with the kingdom of God, is we look at the... the the heroes of the faith of the past, people that were willing to be burnt at the stake to protect the word of God, to translate the word of God, to teach the word of God. People that were persecuted, people that were driven out of their homes and driven out of their countries. We think these are the heroes of the faith. There's biographies written about these people. And who are we? We're that generation. If you ever get fearful about the future and what the future might hold, just, just remember, trust the process. When the time comes, you will have what you need to do the right thing. God gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He never calls us to anything that we can't do, and he, he never lets us get into a situation where he doesn't equip us. So trust the process. What is that process? Well, like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. 
how? How does this happen? This brings us to our third point, the object of desire. The duty is that we're told we must desire this thing. The goal is that we become more spiritual. But how do we do this? Well, it has to do with what it is that you're desiring, the object of desire. So this, look at verse 3. So by it you may grow up to salvation. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because you might say, well, what do I need to do? And the answer is, I can't really tell you that. I can't really tell you what you need to do to crave the word of God to grow up into salvation. It's more a case of, if you know, you know. I was driving on the freeway the other day, and there was a, a billboard for um, an injury lawyer, and it was just a picture of him, and all it said was I-Y-K-Y, which I, I knew meant if you know, you know. I don't know if I gave all of them there, but that's what it is. If you know, you know. Well, I don't know who he is, so I'm, I'm not one of the insiders. I don't know who that guy is. I don't know how to, how to contact him, but he seems to think that there's people that do. But that's what that concept is. It's growing these days in this idea that if you know, you know. If you're an insider, then I don't have to explain this to you. And if I do have to explain it to you, it means you're, you're not an insider and you don't really need to know. People always ask me, so why are there these little rubber ducks um, on the dashboard of your Jeep? Because I see other Jeep owners also have little rubber ducks. What's with that? And the answer is, if you know, you know. You know? It's a, it's a Jeep thing. Well, Peter's saying here, if you're a believer, you know. You don't have to be convinced. You don't have to be taught how to do this. You don't have to have somebody build an argument of why you should long for the spiritual milk of the Word of God. Because if you know him, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, you know you need more of him. For everybody else, you don't know what you're missing. So the order has to be right. You can't long for the pure spiritual milk of the word if you're not born again. If you're not a newborn baby, you're not going to want the milk. You first need to be born again. And if you've truly tasted how good the Lord is, you've experienced that relationship, no one has to convince you to read your Bible. No one has to beg you to pray to Him. Nobody has to build a logical argument to get you to come to church, to fellowship and to sing and to contribute. Because if you've tasted, you know. That's what He's saying. You don't teach your infant to long for milk. They know. They need it. Once she's tasted it, she longs for it. I've had people say, well, I don't want to get too involved in the church. I'm so busy these days. I don't, I don't need a religion that's full of more duties and rules and chores. And you kind of want to say, are we talking about the same religion here? Christianity isn't about duties and rules and chores. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. I don't come to church because I have to. Like there's this checklist that I have to keep doing in order to get to heaven. I come to church because I love the Lord and I love his people and I love his word. Where else are we going to go? 
If you have to be dragged to church, you have to be cajoled into reading the Bible? You don't know. But if you've tasted that he's good, well, you're in already. Peter's alluding here to when he says, uses that word tasted. He's alluding to Psalm 34, verse 8, where he says, uh, the psalmist says, Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher from the 1800s, says, Can a sinner receive a royal pardon, a princely robe, a promise of a crown, and yet remain unmoved? Can he banish hunger at the king's own table, feel the embraces of his reconciled monarch, and still restrain his joy? Can he find himself adopted into the family of God, made a joint heir with Christ and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven and still behave without emotion? No, he must and he will rejoice. Some people find the, the Bible kind of boring, the Christianity thing's kind of boring, and so churches, well, churches are desperate. They know what the people need. They know that they need the pure spiritual work, so we've got to get the people in. If you get the people in, you can give them the pure spiritual milk. But they don't want the pure spiritual milk. They're not craving the pure spiritual milk, so we've got to get them in with something else. So all sorts of things go then. Then church becomes about entertainment. A lot of money is spent, instead of missions and evangelism and sending missionaries out all over the world, that money gets spent on um, entertainment in the church. You, you hire the best band to have the best music, doesn't matter if they're believers or not. Some churches don't even have a policy that it has to be a believer as long as the person can play. And there's this smoke machines and drama skits and flag waving and I don't know, whatever. It's a production. People will go to a production. And then once they're in, you give them Bible. Not the offensive parts because then they won't come back. But you give them the good parts. And then what? Those people aren't going to grow. We're not going to get saved. Something we were taught in seminary is whatever you do to get someone into the building, you have to do to keep them there. So you offer whatever, free pizza or money for bringing your friends or whatever. You've got to keep doing that to keep the people there. That's what they came for. You give them the word of God, they're either going to leave or they're going to stay. But there's no bait and switch going on. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said that worship is about spirit and truth. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is a spiritual endeavor. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, which talks about this longing that we have for God, the way our emotions are involved in our worship, he says, the religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes. God in his word greatly insists upon it that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. Worship doesn't have to be boring. It can and should be, it must be exciting 
and invigorating. It should make you want to be vigorously engaged, fervent in spirit. Where does that come from? That comes from knowing Jesus. Jesus Christ is the most attractive, most appealing, most compelling personality that has ever walked this planet. And to know him is to love him. And to love him is to want to worship him and to obey him and be committed to him and to live and to die for him and to tell others the same. And there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, well, I like to go to church and check the box or whatever because that's what good people do. But actually, my real passion is hunting, football, my career, my health, going to the gym, my friendship circle my hobby, whatever it is. What is your real passion? If it's not Jesus Christ, maybe you haven't tasted that the Lord is good. Because once you've tasted him, none of that other stuff matters. Nothing can pull you away from him. Which do you crave? Honestly, ask yourself deep down, which do you really crave more? Cracking open the word of God? To read and to learn about your Savior? To see him in all of his loveliness? to piece together all the wonderful theology about who he is and what he's done and what the implications are, or to quickly turn on the TV and find out what the score is. To get ready for your favorite whatever the hobby is. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. There's a place for them, but when they start competing in your life for your affections, for your attention, for your devotion, for your time, your effort, your money, your worship, they become idols. And if you're willing to worship anything other than Jesus Christ, I would just question if you've ever even met him. Because once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you can't go another day without him. So the reason people don't have a spiritual appetite, they don't long for the pure milk of the word, it can't be because God is boring. It must be because they are satiated on the spiritual junk food of the world. You've been snacking and filling your mind and heart and soul with all the triviality and nonsense of this world to the point where you don't have an appetite for the things of eternity. That's why C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So if you find that you've been satiated by the trivial delights of this world and that there's sins in your life and there's malice and deceit and envy and hypocrisy and slander and you're not willing to let go of these things and all the other sins, I would ask myself, have I ever tasted that Jesus is good? Do I know him? What's wrong? Why is it that I don't want him and want more of him? But if you're sitting here today and you feel the spirit moving in you and you're, you're saying everything in me is saying, yes, that's what I want. It's a good sign. Don't let that slip away. Don't be distracted from that when you walk out of church. Don't put it aside until next week, Sunday, when you show up. Let that sit with you. Pray and ask the Spirit to continue to cultivate that longing, that craving, that desire for the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God. 
And just start by reading a gospel. Read the story of Jesus and who he claims to be and, and what it is that he does. Read the Psalms that just bear their, their souls, the psalmists bear their souls about God and what they're thinking about him. And read the histories and see what God has done in history and what that means about who he is and what he can do in your life. Go read the epistles that we're doing here that, that teach you on how to apply those things and how to think about those things. Don't drink the rancid juices of sin and poison of worldly distraction. Rather crave the nutrients that are going to build you up. The nutrients that are only available from God himself. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do declare that we, we love you. We long to be with you. We long to learn more about you. We long to be done with the distracting sins of this world and cling to our righteous Savior as we grow up into our salvation. We're also thankful that we can't be saved by our own works, but by yours. And so we thank you for that grace in the many ways that we've fallen short, the many times we've desired things that we should not desire. We're grateful that we can come to you for forgiveness. We know that you smile upon us and that you've clothed us in your righteousness and that you have lived and died so that we can be with you for all eternity. And we long for that with everything in us. Our dear Lord Jesus. Amen.